Violence Uniting Nations, a show about the power of nonviolence in the work of the United Nations. Today, I speak with Gay Rosenblum Kumar from Nonviolent Peace Force, or NP. NP's mission is to protect civilians in violent conflicts through unarmed strategies, build peace side by side with local communities, and advocate for the wider adoption of these approaches to safeguard human lives and dignity. Gay is the UN representative of the NP, based in New York. Hi, my name is Gay Rosenblum Kumar, and I'm the UN representative for Nonviolent Peace Force based in New York. Nonviolent Peace Force is an international non-governmental organization established a little over 20 years ago. We say NGO. We're still a, not a large NGO, uh, but we have our main headquarters in Geneva and an office in Minnesota, as well as a presence here in New York through me, and another presence in Brussels. And we're working in about seven countries now. I understand that you are representing NP at the United Nations. So what do you advocate for on behalf of NP at the UN? Well, NP is an organization based on principles of nonviolence, of the primacy of local actors and working directly with local people on protecting them, those who are at risk of violence. So we're advocating with the UN on a number of ways. And I basically have three audiences that I try to reach. One are UN staff in various offices like peacekeeping and development, peace building, uh, UNICEF on children's issues, others on humanitarian issues. A second very important group are member states. These are the countries that belong to the UN. And the third is the large group of other NGOs or non-governmental organizations that have representation at the UN working on a lot of issues, many of which intersect with NPs. And we are advocating that nonviolence becomes a first resort and not a last resort when looking to solve conflicts. There's a line that is in a report, the High Level Independent Panel on UN Peace Operations report from 2015, known by its acronym HIPPO, which says, with respect to protecting civilians, the panel recommends that, quote, unarmed strategies must be at the forefront of UN efforts to protect civilians. So we try to infuse that into different kinds of thinking and policies and practices at the UN. We would like to make unarmed approaches a regular part of the menu of policy options that the UN and particularly the Security Council looks at when they are thinking about how to address a violent conflict in different parts of the world. You started addressing this already uh, in your previous remarks, but in your work, what role can the UN play in building a nonviolent future? Well, first, let me go back a bit to a little more about what NP tries to promote, because we do several things, and there are several things that we don't do. Uh, we work on 
direct protection of civilians at a very local level on the ground. That means physical protection. We call it protective accompaniment, protective presence, uh, working with various sides to conflict and trying to get them to come together. So while we work in an immediate way when there are people at risk, we also work in the long-term in trying to build community capacity to resolve conflicts themselves, to understand self-protection methods. And so I, I tie this to what you were asking about what the UN can do, because the UN has many, many aspects to its work that help build a nonviolent future. And probably most people know some of them, like the World Food Program, which distributes food to people at risk of hunger or malnutrition. UNICEF, which provides child inoculations and various things to help children. The peacekeepers who are deployed, I believe now there are about a dozen peacekeeping missions with armed peacekeepers. And by the way, we are not saying that we want to replace armed peacekeepers. We know there's a place for them and they do very important work, but we feel that we could complement their work by introducing more nonviolent methods. The UN has a role both in helping improve the development of a lot of countries that are on the least developed country list, because certainly where there is huge competition for resources and major inequities in wealth and injustices when governance is not what it should be, these are all grievances that lead to conflict. And I think the UN is working a lot toward remedying them so as to stop the drivers of conflict and lead to a more nonviolent future. And in contrast, um, what drawbacks do you see that the UN has uh, that could be remedied by a more robust commitment to nonviolent strategies? Hmm. I think in principle, most UN staff and member states would say they certainly have a commitment to nonviolence. Uh, but member states have self-interests and UN staff have their departmental areas of responsibility. And I think this sometimes gets overlooked and there is a, an automatic reaction to do what we've done before and not a deep enough introspection about whether it's appropriate and it fits a new situation. Because certainly the types and levels of conflict in the world have changed since the UN was founded and have evolved a lot in the past 10 or 20 years, especially with the ending of the Cold War, which had more proxy wars and cross-border. And now most conflicts are internal and against a particular state. And while the UN tries to do prevention, it's not honestly very good at it. Uh, most of the time, the UN is reactive and comes in after there's a conflict. And I think it would be more effective if it could have better connection with local people, more eyes and ears on the ground to really understand what's going on and help local people use nonviolent and unarmed means and help build their capacity like NP does. Another thing that's a drawback is, as most people know, and it's very high on the agenda at the UN, uh, the Security Council and its formation of 15 members, five of whom are permanent members and 10 of whom are elected for two-year stays and re are represent different regions around the world. 
is very much locked right now and not able to move coherently. The five permanent members have veto power. And when they have veto power, this is going to block a lot of attempts to do more negotiation. And I think that's one of the major problems. It is very much on the UN agenda, Security Council reform, to either have other members join or to get members to elect not to use their veto power, particularly in cases where there are atrocities and genocide being perpetrated, but they're pretty locked and haven't come to an agreement on that. Yes, I can see how the structure and system of the UN itself could be a um, hindrance to its mission. And also, um, I remember you said earlier about how nonviolence should be the first resort, not the last resort, but in contrary, I think some people or many people tend to think about armed and violent resolution as the first method to respond to conflict. So thinking about things like the current war in Ukraine, the solution that most people think about is more armaments, more military expenditure, more military support to Ukraine. Um, how would you counter that kind of uh, rhetoric? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it has to do with the fact that people are just not aware. They don't know. They're not conversant in the panoply of other actions. And also, honestly, some things I've heard people say is, oh, that's naive to think things can be done without guns. But actually, I think there's a counter argument to that because I know nonviolent Peace Force staff who I have seen in some working in dire conditions, like in Darfur or in South Sudan, are not at all naive and not at all martyrs. They very much use a long-established, well-proven set of methods of unarmed civilian protection that uh, have been proven to work by a lot of different means. One is developing the trust of local actors, being nonpartisan and impartial so that uh, you are not a threat to any one group, getting respect from people and being able to talk and negotiate, also being able to remind all kinds of actors of their responsibilities uh, as duty bearers to uphold standards of human rights and international humanitarian law, and that the eyes of the world are watching them through us. And that can be a deterrent because no one wants a bad reputation, usually. And so I think these are some of the things. And also, by modeling nonviolence, you bring nonviolence. If I could tell you a quick story, I was recently in Darfur. And we have been in Darfur less than a year, so it's still developing relations. Uh, we were working in North Darfur in what is called Zamzam IDP camp, camp about 20 years old since the genocide in Darfur started. And there are, I was told, almost 400,000 people in this camp now. Uh, pretty bad conditions, but we are working. And I was there last month for a number of things, but happened to be lucky enough to see a graduation of four of our women's protection teams. These have about 50 people each. These women have started their training in things like how to protect themselves, how to negotiate, how to speak with authorities and sound like you have authority. It was wonderful to see what they're hoping to do. And then the next day we visited a community outside the camp, about 15 kilometers away of the um, so-called other ethnic group that 
they have a conflict with. Uh, these are Arab herders who are in the past, they were known as the Janjaweed, the people who were blamed for perpetuating violence. And um, they were explaining their problems. And they also said, and we found this out, that because of this past reputation, most humanitarian groups do not go visit them, do not offer aid, and basically only work in the camp, which then creates an imbalance because only one side are getting uh, support and attention. And we were told at first that we could not go to this community without an armed escort. But on principle, Nonviolent Peace Force will not accept an unarmed escort because we say, how can we say that we stand for nonviolence and then have soldiers behind us? It's a contradiction. So we won't do that. And people, the other authorities said it could be dangerous to do this, but we have staff from all sides of the region and ethnic groups. And we reached out through our staff and we started to explain what we do. And we're very clear, we do not offer material aid or humanitarian aid, no food, no water, no health. And we only offer this conflict resolution capacity building, protection capacity, et cetera. And slowly over time, this conversation negotiated to which the uh, people from the town of Colgi met us outside the town on the road. We discussed, we explained what we're bringing. And my colleague said, we built trust kilometer by kilometer. So the first time we met on the road, the next week we met on the edge of town and the next time we were invited into town. And now we have relationships. And the best ending to this story is after I got back, I got a one line email from our team leader in El Fasher, which is the capital of North Darfur, who said, great news. The community from the IDP camp carried water on donkey carts to the Kolgi community. So I think that shows an amazing advance of these two communities, not only starting to communicate, but actually sharing a precious, precious resource like water in that very dry town. Uh, so I think I probably went a bit off of your subject, but it seemed relevant to the kinds of things we want people to be aware of, how it's possible if you use your imagination and think more widely about what can be done. Definitely, and I think it's a perfect story to demonstrate that violence dehumanizes, but nonviolence brings in the humanity to the conflict. What have been some nonviolent peaceful victories that you've seen there? Uh, well, I should say that I'm not the first UN representative for NP. My predecessor was Mel Duncan, who many people know. He's one of the co-founders of NP. And he was the UN representative for about six or seven years before I joined in about 2017. And since his time, of course, he made the initial entry points and knocked on a lot of doors to get some to open. There are several things we can say we've done. We've gotten language about unarmed civilian protection in several major UN documents, like this high-level panel report, like the resolution on 1325 on women and peace building, into several Security Council resolutions, including what they call mandates, which are the Security Council's method of laying out what should be done in a peacekeeping mission. So unarmed civilian protection has been mentioned in several mandates for the mission in South Sudan. 
and most recently in the special political mission in Sudan, which started up two years ago when the peacekeeping mission ended, but it transferred into a more political mission. That's one thing. Another thing is uh, we've had good relations with the UN in several places. In South Sudan, we work in some of the same places at the mission, and I've heard it myself that we've been appreciated. We've gotten some funding from the UN on occasion. I know particularly that that funding was used during COVID to deliver, believe it or not, virtual online training on UCP to young people in, across, first of all, across the continent, then specifically in Darfur, and then specifically in the Sahel. It was a total of about five different courses, some in English and Arabic, some in French. Each one had about 40 people. And the training had amazing repercussions. And I'll tell you just one in terms of how people were like hungry to understand this material and use it. One person wrote in the evaluation, one man from Darfur, before I took this course, I thought the only way our conflict would be solved was through the barrel of the gun. And now I see that the only way it can be solved is without a gun. And I'm going to do unarmed civilian protection. And he started doing training in his refugee camp. So I think that's it. We are trying to get closer to the UN in a lot of ways. And as I mentioned, we don't want to be part of the UN. We don't think the UN can do civilian protection because they're not civilians. They do have some staff called civil affairs, but these are still officers of the UN. Uh, but we do believe that UN staff can use some of our methods when dealing with local communities. And uh, we can share information and work in complementary ways with them. And how can people support your work at the UN and beyond? Well, uh, let's see. First of all, spread the word everywhere you can that this is working, proven, needed more. And as you know, Nonviolent Peace Force is not the only group doing unarmed civilian protection. We estimate there's about 50 organizations working in about 30 different locations. I'd say NP might be among the largest, but we're working very much on a, a community of practice uh, in order to share information and learn best practices. Go to the Nonviolent Peace Force website and educate yourself. And if you get really interested, our manual is there in English, French, and Arabic, and hope soon in Spanish. I should mention also that NP is now working in the U.S. following the um, murder of George Floyd. Uh, and being that we actually have an office in Minnesota, we very much had to look at ourselves and recognize that this work of unarmed protection is needed in many places in this country as well. And we have a program in Minnesota and another in New York City the one in New York City works specifically, I believe, on anti-Asian hate crime reduction and awareness raising. And in Minnesota, I was told that when the city government wanted to stop having armed police in their high schools, they invited NP to train local community members in unarmed methods to protect the high schools. And I believe they're still doing that. So one thing is to equip one, oneself with examples of how this works. Uh, certainly if people can contribute funding, that is very much needed. I know from my own struggles that NP 
is a small organization that depends on grants. Now we do get some large grants from the European Union and the US government, but those are for established programs. And when we get requests to visit new places and we only work upon an invitation from a local group, we don't have like a back pocket or an extra bank account to fund that. In fact, we've had requests from Cameroon uh, to work there and have not been able to find the funding for that. And also my latest effort is to develop at least a training program for Democratic Republic of Congo, which has had horrific violence, particularly in Eastern DRC, as it's called. And again, looking for some designated funding, because I think just like in Darfur, if we could introduce training, we'd get a wellspring of support to actually come and uh, help people establish teams on the ground. Also, if people belong to groups like UNA, the US-UN associations, which have lots of chapters in lots of cities, I think that would be a good place to spread the word. And we'd always be willing to send someone, at least virtually, if we didn't have anyone close by, to really talk about NP. If people are with universities, I do a lot of speaking and others do a lot of speaking to university classes. I'm actually doing one next month with a university class in Japan. And I've done them with classes in Washington and Virginia frequently. So main thing is awareness raising. Perhaps my last question, what drew you to work for NP? Good question. I have been working for NP for about six or seven years now. Before that, I actually worked for the United Nations for 25 years. So I saw the other side of it. And I think when you're up close and know the inside, you see the strengths and the limitations. And I knew that uh, even though I was working mainly on the peace building side, and I think the UN is gathering strength in that, I also saw that there are a lot of people and parts of the UN that had blinders on. And like you said earlier, gravitate first to the commonly thought belief of let's send in peacekeepers with guns and they weren't aware of other opportunities and options and how well they work. And so when uh, Mel was here and I retired from the UN, he said, come help me with this. I couldn't resist as a way to kind of infuse my combination of thinking into all my old uh, friends and colleagues at the UN. And uh, I think we've been pretty successful, but there's a long, long way to go. Mm -hmm.